Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 16E, an interview on Lincoln and the Union Army with John White. I'm really excited to welcome Jonathan White to the show today. John is an Associate Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University and author of numerous books on Lincoln and the Civil War, including Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln which takes a good hard look at the election of 1864 and soldiers' attitudes towards slavery and the Republican Party. Given that this will be our final look at Lincoln, I thought this would be a great final look to take, as the election of 1864 was basically the moment that decided how the war would end. Would the North re-elect Lincoln and continue fighting until slavery was defeated, or would it elect a Democratic candidate who might be willing to settle for something less? Also, given how our next seven presidents will hold some form of rank or responsibility in the Union Army, examining what that army thought of Lincoln, the Republican Party, and slavery is a great way to set us up for a generation of politicians who will be molded by this tremendous shared experience. Uh, So, John, I'd love to start with, when we talk about the Union Army, how homogenous is this army? Because this isn't just people from different states. We know the war opens with a rush of volunteers after Fort Sumter. Uh, But then Lincoln's resorted to conscription before you know it. And then you start getting African-American soldiers and then more and more immigrants in the army. So when we talk about the Union Army, this or that, do we need to break that up into subgroups or can we really do a broad label like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think on the one hand, we can and do talk about the Union Army as a whole or the Union armies, because there's armies that are stationed all over the nation and throughout the Confederacy during and after the war. But yes, to your question, there are a lot of different groups within the Union Army. There are a lot of ethnic regiments. So there are German regiments, there are Irish regiments, there are small numbers of Native Americans and even Asian Americans who fight on either side. Um, And so when we think about the Union Army, I do think it can be helpful on the one hand to think about it as a whole, but then to really dig in and look at different regiments or look at different armies and get a sense of uh, who the soldiers were. There are some historians who have done case studies, and so their approach is to pick a handful of soldiers and really try to understand who they are and how representative they are of different groups of soldiers as a whole. Regimental histories were something that were very popular in the late 19th and early 20th century, where veterans would write about their experiences. And what's interesting is that historians today are beginning to resurrect the regimental history. And so Leslie Gordon did a regimental history of the 16th Connecticut, and Brian Matthew Jordan just published a regimental history of a German regiment from Ohio. His book just came out a few weeks ago. All these different ways of studying, whether you're looking at individual soldiers with case studies, regimental histories, or the army as a whole, I think they all need to be done, those kind of studies, in order to try to get a sense of what the army was or who was in it. Do you think maybe you can talk a little bit more about the different experiences of these different groups in the army? You know, like, was there a standard Union Army experience that that these guys all had in common? Or was it like really from from the German regiment to the Irish regiment to, to the other? Was it really different? 
it varies and it, it varies in a lot of different ways. So African-American men are allowed to begin enlisting in late 1862 in some places and then in large numbers beginning in 1863. Their experience is going to be very different from the average experience of a white soldier. So black men initially are given subpar weapons. They are expected to do what was called fatigue duty, which means manual labor that no one else wants to do and it makes you tired. That's why it's called fatigue duty. They really have to fight for the right and ability to actually engage in combat and fight in the war. And they do it paid a lot less money than white soldiers. So white soldiers initially are paid $13 a month. Black soldiers are paid $10 a month and then they have a $3 allowance taken out for clothing. And so not only are they striving to be able to fight for the union and fight for freedom for slaves, but they have to fight for equality in the ranks. With Irish soldiers, they are gonna be largely democratic soldiers, many immigrants. With German soldiers, you're gonna have some units that maybe have majority German speaking and fewer English speaking soldiers. And so um, it, it really varies uh, from place to place. When we even, you know, even when we generalize about black soldiers, you know, there are some regiments that were raised entirely in the North. There are other regiments that are raised entirely in the South. And so the black soldiers who come from the North are going to be very different from uh, culturally from the formerly enslaved who maybe come from the Sea Isles of South Carolina. Um, so yeah, you could, you could do whole episodes of the podcast. <laughs> I know this is presidential, so maybe that's a little right. different, but you know, there are just reams of books and articles that have been written looking at these different groups of soldiers. And, and, you know, there are some regiments that never saw combat. They were maybe in guard duty around Washington, DC or on outposts on the Western, uh, you know, what we now know as the Midwest, they're out West. Um, you know, they never see combat where there, there are other regiments known as fighting regiments, the one who, you know, see battle after battle with the Army of the Potomac, and they have high casualty numbers. So there are so many different ways to think about the various experiences of soldiers. How similar or different was, was the Civil War Army from the army we have today? You know, like if you took a soldier from today and you, and you sent him back there, would he see things that are similar or would he be blown away by how different it is? Well, I think the biggest difference you'd notice is back then they wore wool uniforms. It was very <laughs> hot when they had to go off to fight in, you know, July 1st through the 3rd in Gettysburg in, in full wool. Um, but I mean, in a, in a real sense, this was a volunteer army of citizen soldiers who did not see being a soldier as their profession. And so at the beginning of the Civil War, the U.S. Army has about 16,000 full-time soldiers who are stationed mostly out West. So when the war begins, Jefferson Davis and the Confederacy and Lincoln and the Union have to begin recruiting volunteers. And these are men who sign up and they're farmers, they're store clerks, they're ordinary Joes from cities and towns throughout the nation. And they don't see themselves as professional soldiers. They see themselves as volunteers who are in it for a set period of time. And then they're going to go home when the job is done. Whereas today we have a professional army. And so men and women enlist and sure, some do it for short periods of time, but, but many plan to make a career out of it. And so I think that would be the biggest difference. 
as as Lincoln's creating this huge army, does he set any new precedents in the relationship between commander in chief and army? Um, if or any other precedents? I mean, I know for one, this is a much bigger army than the U.S. had ever had before. So, what kind of precedents? How does he change the presidency as he's creating this army? Well, one very one aspect that's very different about Lincoln's presidency from today, and I think this kind of gets at the precedents. Um, one thing that amazes me in the research I've done on Lincoln is how he was intimately involved in the daily activities of so many ordinary Americans. So anyone who wanted to could show up at the White House and meet with Lincoln. And yeah. he had office hours in, and this was somewhat typical of 19th century presidents. He had office hours that people could just come in, go into his office and say, you know, my neighbor did this to me and I'm upset about it. What are you going to do? And he'd say, well, I'm president. I have nothing to do. With that. <laughs> um, and so soldiers and their wives and their parents are often going to meet with Lincoln to ask him to pardon, you know, if a soldier has been sentenced to an imprisonment or execution, the wife will go and try to meet with Lincoln or the daughters or the sons or the parents or the wives will send letters to Lincoln or the soldiers themselves will write to Lincoln. And I have looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of court-martial case files at the National Archives. Yeah. And it astounds me how many of these letters are directly addressed to Lincoln. And then, you know, periodically you flip a letter over and on the back is a notation in Lincoln's handwriting signed A. Lincoln, where he says what to do in the case. Wow. And he had these nights where he would stay up late at night reading through these case files of the the you know, soldiers who've been court-martialed and he would decide what to do, or he would make a notation and send it back to the war department and say, get me more information, that sort of thing. And so, you know, I think that earlier presidents may have been engaged with what was going on with court-martial cases as well, because if a soldier was going to be executed, it needed presidential approval, but never before had it been on this grand scale. There's 2 million men who fight in the Union Army and there are 75,000 who are court-martialed and Lincoln looks at well over a thousand of those case files and makes, I, I think he made annotations on more than 1100 of them. Wow. And that's just crazy. I mean, Lincoln <laughs> is waging the war and he's got so much going on and yet he's intimately involved in the lives of thousands of ordinary Americans who reach out to him. Actually, I'll, I'll make a plug here. In October of this year, I'm publishing a book of 125 letters from African Americans to Lincoln. And I have a chapter on civil pardon requests where African Americans were convicted of crimes in Washington, D.C. And Lincoln could pardon those because the D.C. was under federal jurisdiction. And then I have a whole separate chapter of black soldiers who wrote to Lincoln who were uh, sentenced to various punishments for after a court martial. And uh, they wrote to Lincoln. And I actually call the book to address you as my friend, African-Americans letters to Abraham Lincoln, because for these black men and their families, this is the first time that they see a president in the White House who is concerned with their welfare and their well-being. And they write to him in the same way that Lincoln's white constituents do. Man, th thank you for sharing that uh, fascinating insight on, on Lincoln as commander in chief in relation to the army. That's definitely some cool light there. Yeah. Um, so we're going to chat about the soldiers. I know as diverse as they are, try to get what did they think about Lincoln 
the Republican Party, slavery, and the election of 64. And let's start with Lincoln. What did the soldiers, you were just talking about all these letters, people writing to him. What did the soldiers tend to think about their commander in chief? You know, I think that Lincoln was able to get a lot of affection from the soldiers. There are accounts where Lincoln went to the field and he would review the soldiers and they would cheer very heartily for him. That said, there was there were still a lot of soldiers who didn't care for Lincoln. You know, one of the problems, I mentioned the black pay issue a moment ago, one of the problems that soldiers ran into was that the pay never came in as regularly as they wished it did. And so there are people who write to Lincoln and say, if we don't get this pay issue sorted out, we're going to lose votes. The soldiers are going to vote against (laughs) you or vote against the Republican Party because they're ticked off that they're not paid and their families are suffering back home. And so um, I do think there was a lot of affection for Lincoln among the soldiers. And he certainly had a great deal of affection for the soldiers and a great deal of respect for them. Um, But then there were also soldiers who, you know, got upset about various things. And as we'll talk about, there were a lot of Democrats in the army and Democrats had voted against Lincoln in 1860. They enlisted in 1861 because they wanted to fight to save the Union and they were willing to do that. But as Lincoln takes steps that they disagree with, like emancipating the slaves, for instance, or in, in, uh, instituting a draft or even suspending the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus. Democrats become very disillusioned with Lincoln. And so I think there were a lot of Democrats who um, were not willing to support Lincoln in 1864. But, uh, you know, politics in the 19th century was very vitriolic, but it was also very personal. And so there were moments that I've come across where soldiers had a personal encounter with Lincoln and that could win them over. And so one that comes to mind in 1861, there was a young soldier named William Scott. He was stationed outside of Washington, D.C. He was supposed to be up at night keeping picket guard watch. He fell asleep at his post and uh, he was court-martialed and sentenced to be executed. And I actually wrote about this in a book I wrote called Midnight in America, which is a history of of sleep and dreams during the Civil War. And um, this guy, William Scott, he was in the third Vermont and there was a Democrat in his who was a friend of his in his regiment. And um, when Lincoln pardoned him, this Democratic soldier said, well, you know, now that Lincoln pardoned William Scott, I'm going to vote for Lincoln next time he's up for re-election. So, you know, there's all sorts of different things that motivate people to vote. And sometimes um, they're even based on something like that. I'd love to think beyond Lincoln. You know, you mentioned Lincoln. There's a lot of soldiers. Maybe they don't like him, but he can get that personal touch with them. What do they think about the Republican Party? I mean, this is a party that's going to kind of rule the country for quite a while after this. What did the soldiers think of the Republican Party and did those views change the war at all? It's a great question. And that's something that historians disagree about. And I am actually um, in the minority of the historical view. So the standard view that most historians believe is that the soldiers became Republicans during the war. So they may have started the war, you know, maybe it was half Republicans and half Democrats who enlisted in 1861, but that during the course of the war, the Union Army became overwhelmingly Republican, that soldiers saw slavery for the first time for many of them, and they say this is evil, and 
we're going to become Republicans and that they vote for Lincoln in 1864 and then they stay Republicans for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there are certainly some Democrats who enlist in 1861 or 62 who become Republicans. I have no doubt about about one. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And I've read some of their letters describing that transformation. But I think that historians overestimate that transformation. And I think that there were a lot of Democrats who became disillusioned with their own party during the Civil oh, War. Okay. And so um, in 1864, the Democratic Party platform called the war a failure, and they put a peace Democrat on the ticket as a vice presidential candidate. Now, imagine if you've been a soldier for three years fighting for the Union, you're a loyal Democrat, but your party says what you're doing is a failure, and they nominate for vice president someone you believe is disloyal. You're not going to vote for that ticket. And so I think that a lot of Democrats either voted for Lincoln as a one-time act in 1864 and then went back to voting Democratic after the war, or they sat that election out and they said, you know what, Lincoln's an abolitionist. I can't vote for him, but my party is saying things I don't like. I can't vote for my party, so I'm just going to sit this election out. And I, I think it's I think it's more likely that that explains the actions of the Union Army politically in 1864, more so than the idea that they just all became Republicans. Awesome. I'm going to dive more into that topic in in a second. Uh, First, I'd love to ask you about what did the soldiers think of slavery? You've mentioned there's this theory out there. The general thought is the soldiers encounter it. They're horrified by it. They become Republican. What's your take on what the soldiers thought of slavery and maybe how that evolved through the war? Um, To elaborate on this question a bit, in my reading, I saw a lot of things both kind of ways. You know, I saw there were soldiers and generals getting way out ahead of Lincoln, you know, trying to like emancipate slaves early and free mm-hmm. slaves who came across the lines. But I also read that, you know, elements of the army defending DC were borderline mutinous when the Emancipation Proclamation was announced. So where's the truth in that? Yeah, there again, historians disagree. That could be <laughs> the, the theme of this conversation. There are there's one historian who believes that the Union Army became emancipationist in 1861. And I think that's nuts. The evidence just is not there. There are certainly some abolitionist soldiers early in the war, but the bulk of the Union Army does not support emancipation in 1861. There are there are another couple of ways that historians think about this. So some scholars say, well, soldiers went to the South and they encountered slavery and the slaves taught the soldiers that slavery was evil. And then soldiers kind of taught it up the line to their officers, to members of Congress, to Lincoln, and Lincoln eventually learned that he needed to emancipate the slaves. I have a different approach. Um, I think that some soldiers certainly became abolitionists on their own when they encountered slavery and saw it. I think other soldiers became what you might call practical abolitionists. They don't care at all about the welfare of African-Americans or former slaves, but they see that slavery is benefiting the Confederacy, which is therefore hurting the Union. Mm -hmm. And so on a practical level, eh, they don't care about Black people, but they're willing to fight against slavery because they think it will help us win the war. And then what I describe in my book, Emancipation, the Union Army and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, is that there was a very real top-down pressure on soldiers, that Lincoln and politicians and the Union High Command, Republicans at least among it, 
used their power to essentially teach soldiers that they needed to support emancipation. And so I've got two chapters in the book. One looks at soldiers who deserted because they opposed emancipation and the other oh, wow. soldiers who spoke out against emancipation and were court-martialed for it. And what the Lincoln administration would do was publicly punish, and this was common in the 19th century. You would, if you were court-martialed and you did something wrong, you'd be publicly punished for it. So if you got drunk, you might be forced to stand in camp and wear a barrel that said too much whiskey on it and all your comrades see it. And that teaches them, don't go out and get drunk, right? I, I just, I hope the modern army brings that back because that's, that's just... right. <laughs> well, you, you occasionally see it where a local judge will shame someone and make them stand. They'll say like, you can get two weeks in prison or stand on a street corner with a sign that said, I did such and such. And people will opt for the shaming because it's quicker. Yeah. Um, and so there are cases where soldiers cursed about abolitionism or cursed about Lincoln said, I'm not going to fight in a damn N word war. And what the army did in some of these cases was force them to stand among their comrades, hold, wearing a sign that said what they said and everyone would see them. Now, if you're a Democrat in the army and you share that guy's sentiments, you're going to learn that you need to keep your views to yourself. Yeah. And so um, I found a lot of Democrats who silenced themselves. You could call it cancel culture if you want, I suppose, to be a little <laughs> anachronistic. Yeah. But, you know, they silence themselves and they don't speak out politically because they don't want to be punished. They don't want to be humiliated. Um, they don't want to be mocked. And in some cases, they don't vote for those same reasons in 1864. And so that was a really roundabout way of saying there are so many different ways of thinking about this question, how soldiers viewed emancipation. Um, some learn it from the slaves themselves. Some thought slavery was bad all along. Some learn it from Lincoln. Some oppose slavery for practical reasons. And some, you know, support slavery for the rest of the the war i think that becomes a very small minority that supports slavery by the end of the war but i there certainly are some democrats in the army by 1865 who still would not say that they're fighting for emancipation I, i'd love to dive deeper just into that uh the punishment of of mm -hmm. speaking out against lincoln or the war and all that was was there any backlash against that i mean because this feels like something that goes against one of those most core American values, freedom of speech. You know, I'm, I'm just assuming back then it was a big deal, just like it is today. Uh, was there any backlash against it or were they OK with it because it was over any concerns were overridden by, you know, when you speak bad against our the, the union, it's kind of like speaking in support of the Confederacy. Yeah. So when you asked about the differences between the army then and now, you know, now. So soldiers and sailors, they know that they cannot comment on policy issues. Like it, it's against army code of, I forget what it's called, but it's against the army regulations today. Um, it was the same back then. So the fifth article of war forbid soldiers from criticizing the president. But again, these are citizen soldiers who see themselves as people from home who are in the army for a short period of time to do a job, they don't see themselves as relinquishing their right to free speech. And so for, from the democratic perspective, yes, they are complaining about these sort of punishments or the silencing of their views in their private letters, but they even write and say, 
I would never say this publicly because they know they'd be punished for it. Now, the flip side is the Republicans in the army are generally fine with it because it's the silencing of their political opponents or silencing of speech that they believe is disloyal. And so Republicans in the army that I've read tend to be okay with um, what happens and it's Democrats who are upset about it. And and I suppose the shaming would only work if the other soldiers actually treated you with kind of scorn if you did it. So that would suggest that the army frowned on the speech anyway. Yeah, I think that's right. There are many, many soldiers who certainly frown on that kind of speech and um, they write home about it. I mean, that's the thing. Sometimes these punishments get published in the newspapers. Oh, that's embarrassing. Oh, yeah. And people are writing home. And saying, you know, so and so had this happen. So there, the shaming is not even just about what happens in camp, but it's about your community at home as well. Got it. Got it. So I, I'd love to take everything we've been discussing and reframe it in in the context of the election of 1864. You know, folks have been fighting for three long years, and this is an election to decide: do they keep fighting for Lincoln until slavery is licked? Or do they bring in a new administration, which, as you mentioned, I mean, they got a peace Democrat on the on the ticket. Uh, their, their platform called for peace initially. They might settle for less than abolition if it brings peace faster. I, I believe your book mentions that 78 percent of Union soldiers voted for Lincoln. So can you get into that? Did I cite that right first off? And, and why, you know, uh, given all those things you said? Yeah. And so first, let me just give a very quick background to this. Prior to the Civil War, um, Pennsylvania and New Jersey enfranchised soldiers during the War of 1812. New Jersey repealed its law, I think about 1815 or late 18-teens. And so when the Civil War began, Pennsylvania was the only state that allowed soldiers to vote away from home. So this is something that we take for granted today, what we call absentee voting or mail-in voting. This was a very new thing. During, in 1861, soldiers from Pennsylvania voted, and there was a tremendous amount of fraud and corruption in those elections. And so the, the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania actually declared it unconstitutional for soldiers to vote away from home. The Republicans lost in the election of 1862. They lost more than 30 seats in Congress. They lost state houses and gubernatorial races. And what they decided was, well, the Republicans are in the army fighting while the Democrats have stayed home to vote. And that's why we lost. They didn't have a conception that we do today of in off year elections, the party out of power right. tends not to do well. Yeah. And so what they do then for the final two years of the war, 1863 and 1864, is they push for the uh, passing laws in northern states giving soldiers the right to vote. And by the time of the election of 1864, 19 northern states have enfranchised soldiers. And so when we talk about the soldier vote of 1864, it's really the first instance of large-scale absentee voting in American history. About 156,000 soldiers vote in the field, And they were from 14 or 15 states. And then four states allowed soldiers to mail their ballots home or required them to do it. And so we know how the soldiers in the field voted, that 156,000. We don't know how the soldiers who mailed their ballots home voted because their ballots were counted with the vote at home. So they all got mixed together. Got it. But out of the 156,000, yes, 78% of the soldiers voted for Lincoln. 
And for 150 years, people interpreted that as, well, clearly the army became Republican. If, if 80% of people vote for a particular party, you're going to assume that they've all joined that party. And I think it's more complicated than that. And what I alluded to before, there's a lot of intimidation and some coercion in the army. There are instances where the men of a regiment were lined up and the officers would say, if you plan to vote for Lincoln, step forward. And if you don't plan to vote for Lincoln, don't step forward. And Democrats are thinking, well, hey, if I don't step forward, I might get sent to a more dangerous spot or I might not get a furlough. And so they step forward too. And I found one um, one soldier from Vermont, for instance, who, who wrote home to his mother and said, I'll be as black as the D. And, he, and then he put a blank line and he probably meant darky, a, a derogatory epithet for the Republican Party, which was often called the Black Republican Party by Democrats then. And so, you know, he was essentially saying, look, I will vote Republican if it means I get a furlough to go home. And so there's intimidation, there's coercion. And then, as I mentioned a little bit ago, there are soldiers who are Democrats who say, I can't vote for a party that I think is disloyal. Mm -hmm. And so they just don't vote. And I found plenty of instances of those kind of soldiers who choose not to vote. So on the surface, most historians have said, well, clearly the soldiers became Republicans. And I think that's probably not the case at all and that it's much more complex. You, you mentioned the intimidation, the lining people up. That's all crazy. Um, did the soldiers in the field not have a secret ballot? You know, could they in that line step forward and be like, yeah, yeah, I'm voting for Lincoln and then get their ballot and be like, hell no. And write the other guy yeah. down. That's a great question. And the answer is no, they didn't. So voting in the 19th century was very different than it is now. Today, we have the secret ballot. It's known as the Australian ballot. And if you go to vote, you get a ballot that has either been printed by the government or ordered by the government, right? So you get a ballot and it has all the different parties and candidates on it. And you fill in the blank. Do you want the Republican, the Democrat, the Green Party, the Libertarian? And they're all on one ballot. In the 19th century, the parties printed their own ballots. And when you went to vote, you would go to a polling place and you would get a ballot from your party operative. And it would have very, it might have distinctive colors or symbols. So you might get a yellow ballot for the Republicans or a pink ballot for the Democrats or a blue ballot or what have you. And you walk through the crowd and everyone sees you holding that ballot. So from the moment you pick up the ballot from the party operative till you walk through the crowd, till you deposit it in the ballot box, which by the way, ballot boxes at home were usually glass bowls. So it's a fishbowl that you're putting it in. <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. just no secrecy in how you vote. And that then just exacerbates this problem of intimidation and coercion because everyone knows what you're doing. Man, so even the Union Army, you have to, I mean, I, I imagine it would be even hard to find a Democrat in the Union Army in some places to give you your ticket, maybe. Yeah, that became an issue. And so the parties, once these laws were enacted, giving soldiers the right to vote, the party leaders from the northern states start, start sending people down to the south to try to find their voters to give them ballots to get them. Oh, that is and crazy. In some cases, Democrats were run out of camp. 
so that they couldn't distribute ballots or literature, newspapers, pamphlets. And the Republicans write home boasting about this and the Democratic soldiers write home saying, we can't get ballots, we can't get literature. And um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's so different from um, our own experiences today. That, that is so fascinating. So, okay. So we, we still though, of the people who cast their ballot and it's 150,000, which th- even that seems like a small number too, because there's what, 700,000 active soldiers at the end of the war about? There's uh, more than a million. More yeah. than a million in the, the union. It's a small turnout. And that's one of the arguments I make in the book is we have to pay attention to turnout. Now, part of the reason it's 156,000 and not a million is there are some men who are not eligible to vote. There are some who are not yet 21 because you do have to be 21 then. There are some who are immigrants. And so they may or may not be eligible to vote. Um, There are some states that don't enfranchise soldiers. So Massachusetts and Illinois, for example, Delaware, they don't. Um, But that said, you know, it was never, in some ways, it was never easier to vote. Because if you were a farmer in 1860, and you wanted to vote, you might have to walk five or 10 miles to the next town to cast your ballot. If you're a soldier in the field, there's a polling place set up in every company commander's tent you know and so you only have to walk a hundred yards to be able to vote and so if you chose not to vote as a soldier in 1864 my belief is you were making a conscious decision you were saying i can't vote for the abolitionist lincoln i can't vote for the disloyal ticket i'm not voting in this election so so i'm going to ask you a conjecture question now and that's if there if there was no you know none of this stuff if it was secret ballot no intimidation how much, like, where do you think the army generally would have voted in 1864? Do you think a majority did support Lincoln at the end of the war? Do you think a majority of these people wanted to vote for a peace Democrat? Do you think, you know, majority didn't really care? Where do you think it would have gone if all these other factors weren't there? I have no doubt that Lincoln would have still won a majority of the soldier vote. I think he would have gotten above 50%, no doubt in my mind. But I think that McClellan would have got, that George McClellan, the Democratic candidate, would have gotten way more than 22%. But, you know, that said, the the Democrats shot themselves in the feet when they when they put their platform out yeah. calling the war a failure. If they hadn't done that, if they hadn't put a, a Copperhead Peace Democrat as vice president, I think they those things hurt them way more than I think the intimidation and the, the coercion did. So Lincoln is followed by seven presidents who have union army experience from Andrew Johnson, who's the military governor of Tennessee, not exactly like an enlisted soldier, but technically an army thing to to William McKinley, who served four years in the war. I I think he might've been at Antietam if I remember right. What lasting impact did serving in the Union Army have on these men's politics and presidencies? Well, serving in the Army in the 19th century was a very good way to make a case for being presidential timber. And so, you know, that had been true before the war, whether it's Zachary Taylor mm-hmm. or an unsuccessful presidential candidate, Winfield Scott. You know, if you serve in the Army, that makes people more prone to support you. 
And we should point out, too, that in the post-war period, there are Democrats who run for president who had been in the army. So Winfield Scott Hancock, the hero, one of the heroes of Gettysburg, ran, I believe, in 1880 as a Democrat and lost. And so um, but the the appeal there is the same one that you can um, you're worthy of the presidency in part because of your service in the Civil War. I think that in terms of their policies and their politics, the Union Army, the Grand Army of the Republic, which is one of the major veterans organizations, becomes a very powerful lobbying uh, organization. And so they're able to push for things like pe- benefits for veterans and the pension mm. system is you know, drastically increased in the post-war period. And a big part of that is veterans being able to successfully lobby and politicians being veterans themselves and and seeing, you know, that this is a winning political issue in a lot of cases. And so I think that's one of the biggest um, impacts of the politics of the war in terms of a practical sense with veterans having a voice. But then to, um, you know, reconstruction, is a whole topic that you'll cover when you get to your Andrew Johnson and so I won't say a whole lot about that but when you get to that I'm sure you'll talk about veterans in the war as well absolutely absolutely um last question I'd love to ask of you uh, is another Lincoln question and that's what lesson in leadership do you think we can learn from Lincoln that's a great question and I think there's a couple things that come to mind. One is he was one of the hardest working people who probably ever walked the face of the earth. And, you know, we talked a little while ago about how he's dealing with these reams of papers, right? <laughs> dealing yeah. with minutia of things. And he has office hours where, you know, people came to his office and they would say, did you know I gave a speech in Xenia, Ohio? And because I gave that speech, you got elected president. So you should make me consul in such and such city. I mean, he was dealing with craziness like that while waging the war effort. He worked very hard. And that was something that he developed as a kid. As a young person, he worked hard. As a young man, he worked hard. And, you know, he had lots of fun and plenty of leisure and spent a lot of time reading. There's no doubt that there's stories about his childhood where he was supposed to be working in the field and instead his dad found him reading a book. So there's no doubt about it. Um, But, you know, it's interesting. He hated manual labor. And so as a child, he was forced to work hard and it taught him, I'm going to use my mind. I'm going to work hard with my mind and, um, so that I can be successful in other ways and not have to use my hands like his dad had to do. So that's one thing, hard work. Another successful trait that he had, I think, was humility and just genuine interest in people. And people knew when they were talking to him that he was engaged with what they were talking about. And it didn't matter who you were. So in, I'm sorry, I've plugged a couple books here. Yeah, no worries. On Lincoln's birthday in February of 2022, I'm going to publish a book called In a House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. It'll be with Roman and Littlefield. And in this book, I describe how Lincoln met with ordinary African-Americans, people who had been enslaved maybe a year before, who come to the White House 
and talk to him. And he, in every instance, he shakes their hand and he listens to their concerns and he does what he can to try to help them. And it's a remarkable thing that a white president would do that in the 1860s. And it's indicative of how he treated all Americans. When he interacted with them, he was what we might call today genuine and authentic and humble in, in hearing people out and doing what he could do to help them. And so I think his hard work and his just genuineness and also, you know, he had a great sense of humor and that certainly helps political leaders. He could spin a yarn, he could tell a tale, he could crack a joke and that endeared him to many people. Now, some people hated it. Edwin Stanton, <laughs> his secretary of war, just couldn't stand when Lincoln would tell jokes. But for ordinary people, it was a great device for getting them to understand what he was trying to say. And the last thing I guess I would say is he, he was a voracious reader and a brilliant writer. And from a young age, he was dabbling in writing poetry and things. And I think that helped him figure out how to put words together. And he had a knack for being able to persuade people of the rightness of his cause. And for him, persuading, shaping public opinion was really important to leadership. And I think that's also an important key. Thank you for your time, John. If anybody wants to follow or hear more from John, he's got a website, jonathanwhite.org. That's J-O-N. He's also on Twitter at Civil War John, also J-O-N. And he has a number of books out there that you can read, including Emancipation, The Union Army, and The Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, and like at least three other books that he mentioned on the show. You can rewind and find the titles. Thank you so much for coming on the show, John. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll move on from Lincoln and on to Reconstruction, the process of reintegrating the South into the Union. It's the kind of challenge you'd want a wise, humble, and empathetic president at the till for. Instead, we'll get Andrew Johnson and our first impeachment trial. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.